Uh, the passage today is all about the power of words, the power of words. Uh, when children are being teased, uh, sometimes parents will tell them to say back, sticks and stones might break my bones, but words can never hurt me. But that's rubbish, isn't it? It's rubbish. Because words can hurt far more than a pinch or a punch. Physical pain goes away, but the hurt from words can last a lifetime. Words like, you're useless. I don't love you anymore. You're fat. I hate you. Words are powerful. They can be powerful for the damage they do, but they can also be powerful for the good they do. Uh, this passage in 1 John is about both types of words, lies that damage, truth that does good. Remember John's writing his letter to warn about false teachers, to people spreading lies. Uh, notice how many times John mentions the words they use. Uh, back in chapter 1, just to turn back the page, or same page, but back in chapter 1, verse 6, John says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and don't live by the truth. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. Moving into chapter 2, verse 4, the man who says, I know him, but doesn't do what he commands, is a liar. Chapter 2, verse 6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And again in verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Do you hear it? These are the words that they're speaking. Words are powerful. There were people in the church or who had been in the church who were claiming all sorts of things, making all sorts of statements, claiming to be part of God's people, but they were lies. So how can you identify who's telling lies and who's telling the truth? Well, John says the way to test the lies is to look at their life because their lifestyle will give them away, because their actions shout louder than the words they use. Like verse 4 of chapter 2, they say they know God, but they don't obey him. Or verse 9, they claim to be in the light, but they hate their brothers. Makes them liars. The truth is, verse 11, they're not in the light at all. They're stumbling around in the darkness. They're blind. No matter what they say with their mouth, the truth is they're not keeping God's commands and they actually hate their brothers, no matter what they say. And the danger of speaking is they're not just speaking the words to themselves, they're putting others at danger too. They're leading other people into the danger of God's judgment. They're not just doing certain things, they're speaking about them to others. And that makes the words that these false teachers are saying far more damaging than insults like, you're useless, or I don't love you anymore, or I hate you. So who are these people who are speaking? Well, John finally gets round to giving us a little bit of information about them down in verse 18. Up to this point, he's been speaking in generalities. If we claim 
the man who says, anyone who claims to be in the light. But have a look there in verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour, and even as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. If they belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. We'll come back to the Antichrist bit in a moment, but notice first he's describing people who used to be part of the church community, but then they left. For a while, they looked like Christians, but when they left, they showed their true colours. They weren't really Christian at all. In fact, they were anti-Christ. And then in verse 20, we see the contrast. We see the genuine Christian who knows the truth because God's Holy Spirit guides him. But then, verse 22, uh, in comparison again, another way to test the liar. Who's the liar? It's the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. The liar is revealed by what he says about Jesus. It doesn't matter what other things you say you believe or even what you do. If you deny that Jesus is the Christ, it shows you don't know God yourself. You don't know God himself. If you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you can't know God himself. But what does it mean? to say that Jesus is the Christ. Sometimes we hear Jesus and Christ together so often we assume that Christ is a surname, don't we? You know, Jesus Christ, David Bowser. But it's not a surname, it's a title. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. It means anointed one. It's the title for God's promised king. And so these false teachers were taking a look at Jesus and they were deciding that he wasn't the Messiah. He was a good teacher, perhaps. He was a prophet, a miracle worker maybe, but he wasn't a Messiah and he certainly wasn't God. But they didn't just believe that, they said it. They denied more speaking so so that other people were influenced by their lies. It's the power of words. And so John calls people like that anti-Christ, against Christ. And what you say about Jesus is a key theological test for John. It's the litmus test. He comes back to it again and again. What you say about Jesus is the litmus test for whether you believe or not, whether you're truly part of God's family. Uh, Flip over to chapter 4, verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2. This is how you recognise the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But if but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. That's the, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. Or verse 15 of chapter 4. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. Or chapter 5 verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Or chapter 5 verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. How many times has he got to say it? I wonder if he is so repetitive because he's wanting to use the power of words to to cancel out 
uh, to block, to stop all the lies that have been disturbing people. In fact, John was on about the same theme when he wrote his Gospel. From what we can work out, this was written 10, 15, 20 years after the Gospel. Uh, Chapter 20, verse 31, he, he tells us why he wrote his Gospel. All these things I've written down in my Gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why is it so important to John that people believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Why? Because there were others who were competing for that title. He wasn't the only one claiming to be the Messiah. The Jews had been waiting for God's promised Messiah for centuries and there'd been a lot of false messiahs who'd come on the scene. Like Judas Maccabeus, 160 BC, he led a revolt against the Romans. People got excited, but then he was killed. Not the Messiah. Or Simon of Perea, 4 BC, he said he was the Messiah. He led a rebellion, but he was killed by the Romans. Not the Messiah. Or Judas of Galilee, AD 6, he leads a violent rebellion. People follow him. Guess how he finishes out? He's executed, not the Messiah. Or Thutis, AD 46, Josephus tells us about him. He led a great crowd of people out to the Jordan. He promised he'd divide the river so they could cross over. But the Roman governor sends out a troop, killed lots of the crowd, takes Thutis captive, cuts off his head, sends it to Jerusalem. Not the Messiah. They're all dead. But then there's Jesus. And he appears. And John follows him around, together with a crowd. But he never builds an army. But just like God promised king, he brings in God's kingdom. And there's life and peace and blessing and healing popping up all around Jesus. But then he too is executed and the hopes of the nation are dashed again. But here's what sets Jesus apart. It's why the title of Christ is connected so closely to Jesus that it gets mistaken for his surname because he rose from the dead. We saw it last week. It's the foundation that John bases his whole message on. Jesus rose from the dead. It's why he's so sure that Jesus is the Christ. Chapter 1, verse 1 of uh, of 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life. The rest of the apostles concentrate on that same message. Jesus rose from the dead. I, I read it as we started our service this morning about Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Fellow Israelites, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God, but you with the help of wicked men put him to death, but God raised him from the dead. We're witnesses of it. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. It's the resurrection that shows Jesus as Christ. It's God's stamp of authenticity. It's where God vindicates Jesus, where he answers the critics, where he sets the record straight, where he enthrones Jesus 
as king. It's the resurrection that sets Jesus apart from the pretenders, from the pseudo-messiahs. In fact, it's the resurrection that sets Christianity apart from the world religions. It's the best answer possible to false teachers, these antichrists, who say Jesus isn't the Christ. John says, look at the resurrection. The resurrection proves he's the Christ. This truth of the resurrection, it's far more than some abstract point of theology you can just debate and take or not. Everything depends on the resurrection. Look at what it means if you deny that Jesus is the Christ. If you say, no, he's not the Christ, uh, chapter 2, verse 23 says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. The Jews were saying you could know God, but you didn't need Jesus. The false teachers were listening to them. The false teachers were convincing other people. But John says those are lies. If you reject the one the Father sent, then you reject the Father. You can't know God if you don't know Jesus. Now, that would be shocking to Jews. That would be the ultimate insult. You don't know God. Then or today, Jews would be insulted. Jews think they're being faithful to God by rejecting Jesus. But John says all that means is they're not actually in a relationship with God, no matter how well they keep the Torah, keep the the Old Testament law. What you think about Jesus reflects whether you know God. That's why the resurrection is so important, because it proves who Jesus is, that he's the Christ. Now, if you're still investigating Christianity, if you're not sure about this whole thing, the resurrection, that's the miracle you need to work out. You need to work out whether you believe that. If you're convinced of that one, then all the rest becomes easy to accept. In fact, the rest of the Bible just opens up once you accept that one, that God did raise Jesus from the dead. Well, that's the false teachers. That's their lies. That's that's how to test them. You compare what they do with what they say. But but John also writes truth to, to correct lies so that true Christians are not led astray. In fact, he tells us again and again that that's why he wrote, for for true Christians. Uh, Like verse 21, it's maybe the, the key verse in the whole letter. Why does John write? I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, but I write because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. He's writing to true believers because they already know the truth. And he wants them to remain there. He wants them to be confident in what they know and what they've got so that the lies don't destroy that. He says the same thing a few verses earlier on, back up in verse 12. Why did he write? I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. And then he says the whole thing again. Again and again he says why he's writing. He's, he's describing, he's carving out who this group of people is and what they believe so that they'll hold on to it. 
He's warning them against the other group of people who are not described like this. I think that's what he's doing in verses 12 to 14. Is it a hymn? Is it a prayer? What's going on? I think he's defining the boundary. He's defining the boundary between the liars who walk in the darkness and those who walk in the light. And so as the letter's being read, he's describing in different ways, he's repeating himself, words are so powerful, lies are so dangerous, he keeps speaking to his audience so that they might know it. He's giving them words of affirmation. This is who you are. That's why I'm writing to you, because you guys are like this. You've overcome, you believe, you trust. Your sins have been forgiven. And he goes on to give them a number of tests to help, diagnostic questions to show that they do belong to Jesus. Just like he's given tests for the liars, uh, tests uh, for the believers, like like back in verse 5, he gives a series of, of comparisons I don't know whether you used to do the, the kids' puzzles in the newspaper where they spot the difference. You know, two pictures, and they've got fine five differences between these two pictures. You remember them? Well, well here he's giving us two pictures, and, and we've got to spot three differences. Uh, so we've got the counterfeits and we've got the Christians. And, and then in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Liars disobey God's word, but if someone obeys God's word... His love for God is truly made complete in him. Now, there's a bit of discussion about what that phrase means. God's love is made complete in him. Uh, I think it's his love for God reaches its fulfilment, reaches its logical conclusion. You obey, you love, therefore you obey. Obedience is the end goal of our love for God. We show we love him when we trust and obey him. You see, God's love language is acts of service. He recognises that we love him when we do things for him. That's how we know we're in him. Just saying it, words of affirmation are not enough. We've got to do the acts of service that go with it. Well, verse 6, same idea, walk as Jesus did. That backs up your claim that you live in him. Obedience, test number one. Or verse, uh, down in verse 10, The liar hates his brother. But in comparison, remember we've got a counterfeit, the counterfeit hates his brother. Uh, The true Christian loves the brothers. That shows you live in the light. Someone may be the most gifted, persuasive evangelist, speaker in the world, but if he can't be bothered to meet with other Christians, if he thinks he's too good to be part of a normal congregation, to hold himself accountable... If there's no love for his Christian brothers, then maybe he's not speaking the truth. Obedience, love. Test number three. Uh, It's about what you believe. That's down in verse 20. Uh, If you've got the anointing of God's Holy Spirit, you'll know the truth. What's the truth? Uh, Acknowledging the Son... Uh, Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father. It's about acknowledging the Son. What does that mean to acknowledge the Son? You need to believe what the Bible teaches us about Jesus. It's a whole range of things, I guess. He's God's Son. He's eternally with the Father. He became fully man. He died. He was raised from the dead. He's now seated at God's right hand. He's been declared Lord and Christ. 
That's what it means to acknowledge the Son. If you do those things, you have the Father. Believe those things. And so that's going to rule out Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, JWs, Mormons and a stack of other religions who are not acknowledging the Son. And let's throw in the non-religious Aussie. He or she who thinks they're a good bloke or a good Sheila and that that'll be enough before God. If you're not acknowledging Jesus, you don't know the Father. All of those religions and Aussies believe some things about Jesus, but they're not acknowledging Jesus. What were the three tests? Do you remember? We're going to come back to them again and again. It's about obedience and love and belief. John wants to see people who believe that Jesus is the Christ, who know him, who live that out in obedience and love, who walk as Jesus did because they're in Jesus, who are not swayed by lies. Obedience, love, belief. We'll come back to them. Is that you? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Does your life show evidence that you're in him? Is there a love for God that's reaching its end goal when you obey him? Are you loving the brothers? Are you committed to them? Now, you won't be perfect, but are you changing? That's a good question to ask. Are you a different person to the one you were a year ago? If that's you, then you can have confidence that God is at work in you by his spirit. You can have an assurance. You're one of those that John is writing to. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven. So what should you do now, if that's you? Well, John's answer would be, keep doing. More of the same. Let the good words sink into you. Down in verse 24, towards the end of the chapter. See that what you've heard from the beginning remains in you. John loves that word. John's Gospel, 1 John, remains. If it does, if what you've heard remains in you, you will remain in the Son and in the Father. This is what it is. This is what I promised you, eternal life. That's eternal life. To let his words remain in you so that you remain in Jesus. That's what eternal life is. It's not just what you'll get, it's what you you can experience now. Letting his true words remain in you. Soaking up those words of affirmation John's been speaking. Meditate on them. Love them. Live them. Believe them. And don't just let John's words influence you. Speak those words to each other. Uh, Words that build up rather than tear down. Words that encourage and guide and correct. Because don't forget, words are powerful. Words are powerful. And as we speak to one another like that, God will use those words to keep us in him. Even his spirit speaks to us as we speak to one another. Did you notice how John finishes the section? As for you, the anointing you receive from him, the Holy Spirit, remains in you. You don't need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as he has taught you, remain in him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. Uh, They're clear. Uh, They give us a challenge. We pray that you'll help us 
to see them and to trust them uh, so that we might remain in you. And we pray that for all those uh, who we know who are part of us here. Amen.